Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church. I'm glad that you are with us today here online. Thanks so much for joining us. We are memorizing John chapter 19, verse 30 this month, and so it will be on the screen. Why don't we take a moment and say it together? John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19, 30. We have been continuing our series in the book of John, and we are studying the book of John in light of the reason for why it is written. And John does a wonderful job in his gospel of giving us the reason for why he has written this book. And it actually even comes up again in our text today. And so John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we've said this uh, very often throughout this series, but it's good to revisit it. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And indeed, that is the title for this sermon series in the book of John, Believe and Have Life in His Name name. And so the first half of our text this week, the first half of the time that we're going to spend together, this, to be honest with you, is a very difficult place to be. This is the place where we want to look away. And to be honest, for me, this is the text in the passion narrative that I am least comfortable sitting in. Last week, as we ended our text, Jesus says, it is finished. And at that point, we want to throw up our hands and shout and sing amen and celebrate the glorious truth that it is finished is. But then for me, naturally, I like to move from it is finished right into the empty tomb. But John's gospel does not allow for us to do that. He does not move us immediately into the empty tomb. First, we must be confronted with the full and lifeless body of Jesus on the cross. God intends for us to look. The word seeing is a major theme in the gospel of John. And so here, friends, here, right in this text today, we come face to face with the role that our sin played in Jesus' death. Our shalom is shattered as we gaze upon the wounded and bloody and dead body of Jesus. And here we witness a consequence of silence in the face of injustice. A life has been given one life for the lives of many. And ironically, with this life, a restitution has been made. And this is not the first time in the Bible that we have been faced with this shocking picture of a restitution. 2 Samuel chapter 21 contains a narrative about a young woman or a mother whose name was Ritzbah. 
Have you heard of Ritzvah? Ritzvah was a concubine, one of Saul's concubines. She had two sons by Saul. And to make a long story short, I think we know this, but Saul, he was not the greatest of kings. Now, one point during Saul's reign, Saul breaks covenant. He breaks treaty with a people group known as the Gibeonites. It was a treaty that had been made all the way back in the book of Joshua, chapter 9. And Saul breaks covenant and he leads a massacre against the Gibeonites. And as a result of this breach of contract, God sends a famine. But the problem is that when the famine comes upon the land, Saul is no longer the king. David is now on the throne. And so David inquires of the Lord concerning this famine, and the Lord confirms that indeed the famine is due to the indiscretions of Saul. And so David sets off to make reparations with the Gibeonite people. A relationship had been broken. Covenant was broken. Love had been broken between communities. So community was broken. Restoration, reconciliation were needed. David sought justice. So David goes to the Gibeonite leaders and he asks the leaders the following question. He says, how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites reply to David, to King David, they say, listen, no amount of money that you could give us could repay us for what King Saul did to our people. We don't need your silver. We don't need your gold. Nor do we need you to go back to Israel and put anyone to death in your own country. We don't need you to do that. Here's what we'd like. If you want to make restitution with us, if you want to repair the relationship, instead, give us seven of Saul's sons that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah. Seven sons of Saul would hang for the actions of their father. This to make atonement for the sins of Israel against the Gibeonites. It tells us in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 21 that they, these young men were given into the hands of the Gibeonites and the Gibeonites hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. How can we not want to look away? And we must look upon these difficult realities, church. We must confront them. We must explore them. We must process them. As these seven bodies hang to make atonement, now... We focus our gaze back to our text in John chapter 19 and confront Jesus who is hanging to make atonement for our sins. Take your Bibles today and turn to John chapter 19. We are going to start in verse 31. And as you turn there, I want you to hold on to the name of Ritzvah. Keep it in the back of your mind for we are not yet finished with her narrative. We'll finish it later. 
We are going to move now into John chapter 19, verse 31. And before we read, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We stand at this difficult place today and we look at the, at the body of your lifeless son, Jesus. This is a difficult place to be, Lord. We know that our sins played a part in what had to take place. And we desire to move past this place, Lord, but not before we learn what you intend for us to know right here and right now. And so we ask today that your spirit would work as we gather around your word, that he would convict, that he would move, that he would guide, that he would direct. And that our lives would be changed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. This scene is bleak. It is the day of preparation. The laws of Judaism would not allow for a person to hang on a cross in fear that their body would desecrate and defile the land. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23 says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not Remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed of God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Jesus became a curse. He became sin who knew no sin. And there he was hanging on the tree as Sabbath drew near. And friends, his death was not without an incredible depth of purpose. God was glorified. The wrath of God was satisfied. The sins of humanity atoned for. There was redemption. There was mercy. There was forgiveness. Healing. We might remember the account. Some of you remember the account in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. You remember the Israelites... They were in the wilderness, and they became quite unsettled. 
You may remember this narrative. The people became impatient. And what did they start to do? They started to grumble against God and Moses. And they said things like this. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food. There is no water. And we hate this worthless food. Now, quick question. I thought there was no food. And it, it always strikes me when I read that. Complaining, grumbling. So God, what did he do? You remember this. He sent the fiery serpents. And the fiery serpents came into the camp. And they began to bite the people. And many of the people died. And so as you would imagine, they begin to repent of their complaining and their grumbling. And so God gives Moses a remedy for the snakes. And his remedy is very ironic. He tells Moses, he says, why don't you go and make a statue or make an image of those serpents and put it up on a pole and raise it up so that anyone who is bitten and looks at the serpent will not die. And it was so. That's, that's how it happened. And the people were healed. And now you flash forward with me into the early ministry of Jesus. John chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus. Nicodemus, one of my favorite characters in John's gospel, who ironically appears again in our text later today. Jesus alludes to these fiery serpents as he talks about his own body being lifted up. John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And friends, this is where we're at today. This is the Messiah lifted for the world to look upon. And so here's what would happen. We talked about this last week. You remember uh, we, we demonstrated how a person would be hung on the cross, how their feet would be crossed one over the other, and the nail would drive through. And what would happen as they hung on the cross is they would push up on the nail that had been driven into their feet so that they could breathe because the weight of their body would press down, not allowing them to breathe, and they would begin to suffocate. So to hasten the death of the people who were on the cross because Sabbath was approaching, the Roman soldiers would pick up these mallets, and you can think of them as a, a, a kind of like a sledgehammer-looking tool. And they would go to these men who were hanging on the cross, and if they saw they had not yet died, they would take that mallet and sweep it across the bottom of their legs, breaking the bones in their legs so that they could not push up any longer to keep themselves from suffocating. It was especially horrific. And as their strength gave way and they could no longer hold themselves up, they would die by asphyxiation. Look at verses 32 and 33. The soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus was already dead. There was no need for this extra torment. He had willfully given up his spirit at the exact time required by the Father in order that all of the prophecies concerning his body would be fulfilled. 
It is the father who had claim on the body of his son. And in the next part of Jesus' earthly ministry, even though it's very short, the father would ensure that the body of Jesus was treated exactly how the Bible prophesied it would be treated. The soldiers would not break the legs of Jesus following prophecies from Psalms, Exodus, and Numbers, but they would pierce his skin. Blood would run down from the side of the Messiah. Blood and water, verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Friends, the Son of Man, Jesus, took on flesh. He shared in our humanity. And for every one of us, whether we're watching at home or whether we're here, when you, when you prick your skin, when your skin is pierced, we all bleed. But here's where the water comes from. When a body endures the type of trauma that Jesus would have endured on the cross, that kind of beating, that kind of abuse, the torment that it had taken, fluid begins to build up around the vital organs to help protect the vital organs and keep them from failing. And so around his heart and around his lungs, fluid would have been building up. And when they drove the spear into his side, the blood and the water spilled out. John would later write this in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 6. He said, this is he, speaking of Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Fulfilled, friends. All of this is happening in front of John. Every piece, his eyes are witnessing it. It is, it is why he could proclaim with such confidence what he said in the first three verses of his first epistle. Look at this in 1 John chapter 1. Look at what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ friends seven words here seven words in three verses related to sight and John reminds us in verse 35 that he was an eyewitness and he reminds us that he was an eyewitness so that we may also believe. That's the goal of all of John's gospel. And friends, the reality is this. We will all face a reckoning with Jesus. Every one of us. And so here's the soldiers piercing Jesus. Last Sunday they were lifting up the hyssop branch filled with the sour wine. We all must look. Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Please for mercy 
so that when they look on me, on him they have pierced, they shall mourn for him who mourns. As one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one who weeps over a firstborn. Then Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Friends, weeping and mourning are appropriate responses for us when we look upon the pierced body of Jesus. And those of us who are regenerated from within, those of us who have experienced a new birth, who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith, our weeping is turned into joy. Our mourning is turned into dancing. As we look upon him and acknowledge him for who he is. Those who are still in darkness, they look too. But they cannot see. They're blind. They cannot see the way, the truth, the life. They weep and they mourn. And for them, there is no consolation. And so we all must come to terms. Every single one of us must come to terms with the answer to these two incredibly important life-changing questions. And they are this. Question one, who is Jesus? We all must know the answer to that question. And question two, how do I relate to him? John is writing that we may believe, so the question is, do we believe? And if we do, do our lives reflect it? Do our lives validate that belief? All of this truth testifying to the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is who he said he was. He's fully God, fully man, Messiah, Savior, Son of God. Son of man. The crucifixion, friends, is a real event. It happens in time and space. And John was not the only public witness to this execution. There were others present. And some that were present were facing their own reckoning. They were reckoning with the events that were unfolding before them. There were some who were present that were no longer willing to keep quiet and remain comfortable. Confronted with the injustice of Jesus' lifeless hanging body and what Jesus had endured and why he was there, some spring into action. Now, who remembers Ritzbah? We talked about Ritzbah in the beginning. Remember? Of the seven men who hung for the sins of the Israelites. Two of those seven men were sons of Ritzbah. And as you could imagine, as any of us could imagine, who are participating today, Ritzbah is devastated. She's devastated. Imagine having your own sons, your own children, taken from you to pay by death for the sins that somebody else had committed. But isn't this what Jesus' death was also accomplishing? 
And the problem for Ritzbah in 2 Samuel 21, the problem for her is that nobody seemed to care about the dignity or the humanity of her sons after they had perished. There they died and there they hung. All of that talk in Deuteronomy that we saw at the beginning about bodies not hanging on trees overnight, apparently it didn't apply to the lives and the bodies of her sons. They didn't seem important to anyone. The crowd had moved on. The dead bodies had little value to the community anymore. Let them hang till they are simply no more. So here's Ritzpah, a mother. She could have done what everybody else in her community would have done. She could have gotten her sackcloth and ashes and gone into her house and sat in her house and mourned. But that's not how she behaved. She takes her sackcloth and she marches to the top of the mountain. She's going to advocate for the dignity of those young men. And I would suspect and I would hope that many of us who are here, who are watching, would be compelled to do the same thing that Ritzpah did when put in the same situation. But 2 Samuel 21 tells us she's the only one who went. And she's up there for a rather long time. This isn't just a quick visit. It's not a few hours. In fact, the text says that she went from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens. Now imagine seven bodies on a cross or hanging from a tree, however they were executed. Imagine what would begin to happen to those bodies after a few days. The flesh begins to rot. An odor begins to attract wild carrion and beasts. They're coming for the rotting flesh. And Ritzpah chases them away every time. And she does this day after day after day. It's crazy. It seems crazy. But for her it was not. It was love. And eventually somebody tells David about Ritzpah's heroics. And David is reminded as the famine is still plaguing his land. That not only has he not properly cared for the bodies of these seven young men. But he has also failed to care for what remained of the bones of Jonathan and Saul. And so David remedies these wrongs. In verse 13 of 2 Samuel 21 it says... David brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hung. And he properly cares for their bodies. And God responds to David's plea. And God heals the land of famine. It was not okay for Ritzbah to look upon the gross injustice that she witnessed and do nothing. Love motivated her actions. Motivated by the love of her sons and perhaps even a desire to honor God by keeping her law, she acted. She did something. And she continued to act. She continued to do it. 
until the wrong was made right. And now come back to John 19 with me. And we might ask ourselves the question, what will happen to Jesus' body? Will he face the same fate as these young men in 2 Samuel 21? Who's going to care for the dead body of Jesus? Will love compel action? And if it does, who will be compelled to act on Jesus' behalf? Take a look at verses 38 to 42 with me. Starting in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now both these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, and their involvement at this point in the narrative is very unusual. Both of these men were in a designated class of religious leaders. According to Luke's gospel, Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin. Matthew's gospel tells us that he was a good and upright man. Nicodemus, on the other hand, we know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling class. Joseph, even though he was a disciple, he remained a disciple of Jesus in secret, out of fear. But witnessing this gross and detestable act against Jesus, he's now compelled to step out and do something. It's no longer okay for him to remain silent, to be a part of this religious institution silently that had perpetuated the death of Jesus. It's amazing. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his letter from a Birmingham prison, quote, We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. End quote. Anglican Bishop Desmond Tutu says, quote, If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. End quote. No longer comfortable with playing the oppressor, Joseph is compelled to act. Jesus' dignity, the humanity of Jesus is important to him. Love is motivating action. And it may be fair for us to ask, friends, I do think it's a fair question. Why now? Why now? Why, why would it not have been braver for Joseph to speak up? Would it not have been bolder for him to speak up while Jesus was being tortured and abused while he was still alive? It's a fair critique. 
But, but we don't know that he wasn't. We don't know that he hadn't spoken up. Perhaps he had given a defense of Jesus. There is certainly biblical evidence that suggests that not all of the Pharisees and religious leaders were supportive of what was happening to Jesus. It's also hard to argue that the easier thing for him to do in this situation would have just been to continue to follow Jesus secretly, silently. Just letting the body of Jesus hang with no concern. Just let it go. It's not your business. This is not Joseph's destiny, though. God had prepared Joseph and Nicodemus to lead in such a time as this. Prophecy had long foretold these very men and this very moment. Isaiah 53, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This was their destiny. And so bravely, boldly, it's amazing what Joseph does here. Joseph has a platform because he's a member of the Sanhedrin, because he's a religious leader, he has a way to get into Pilate's quarters and speak to him. And so he goes to Pilate with an impossible request. Here, I mean, I, Pilate had to think, these people are crazy. They're crazy. I mean, here, a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the ruling group that just put Jesus on the cross now wants to be responsible for his lifeless body, to care for it. The fact that Pilate releases the body of Jesus to these men is miraculous in and of itself. Under Roman law, the tradition was, the rule was, the law was, if, if you were crucified for sedition, as Jesus was, under the Roman law, it was custom to let the body hang and rot. That was the custom. It was to be a spectacle. The bodies of those crucified for other crimes could be returned to next of kin. But as D.A. Carson notes in his commentary, it was Jewish custom to never bury a convicted criminal in a family tomb where they might desecrate the bodies of those already buried. Most who were executed when removed from the cross, if, if you were taken down from the cross after execution, most were just disposed of in what was a common criminal's grave. And it's very interesting, there's a contrast here in our text today, friends. The demands of the religious institution, plural, Jews, in verse 31, give way in verses 38 to 42 to the courageous actions of dissenting individuals within that same institution. Joseph and Nicodemus are doing that which nobody else was willing to do. And I can imagine that in doing so they invited a great deal of critique, a great deal of criticism, a great deal of judgment from some very religious people. Knowing what would happen to the body of Jesus, where the Roman government left with its care, they chose to act. 
And not only would their behaviors, not only would have it invited criticism and judgment and critique and all these other things, but Nicodemus and Joseph's behaviors were self-sacrificial. They were selfless. Take a look at the second half of verse 39. Look at this. Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds. Have, have you tried to lift 75 pounds recently? Uh, myrrhs and aloes and spices, 75 pounds. That's a lot. And scholars estimate that between the cost of the spices and the cost of the tomb, the personal expense to Joseph and Nicodemus in today's estimation would have been somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000. That's a six-figure reparation. Time was of the essence. The Sabbath was upon them. And soon, according to their law, they would no longer be able to work. So in verse 40, they take Jesus' body, they bind it in linen cloths, they cover it with spices, following the Jewish customs for a proper burial. And near Golgotha, there was a garden. And in this garden, Joseph had an unused tomb. And that tomb would serve as a very, very temporary resting place for Jesus. I believe I've showed this image before. I think it was at Easter last year. This is an image of what many scholars believe the tomb would have looked like in Jesus' day. And there in that tomb, they laid the body of Jesus. So we ask ourselves the question as we come to the end of our text every week, how might our lives look in light of these realities? Friends, I will say this. I am motivated by the actions of Joseph and Nicodemus. I can't imagine what they stood to lose behaving the way they did. The courage and the bravery that it took for them to act. The sacrifice. Joseph would sacrifice his own position, his own platform to go before Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus that he would sacrifice his own popularity within the Jewish religious ruling council to treat Jesus' body with dignity and respect. A financial sacrifice. Nicodemus, 75 pounds of spices is a lot of money. He proved by his behaviors that he was willing to put his money where God was directing his hands. These men did something, friends. They acted with conviction and intentionality. And my prayer for us today, my hope for us today, would be that Joseph and Nicodemus' actions inspire us to live this way in today's world. There is a lot of injustice going on around us. And to live motivated by love, acting according to our convictions, living with intentionality, not being okay with silence. These are wonderful examples for us in our text today. And as lovers of truth, as followers of Christ, when Jesus places opportunities in our pathways to speak up or act out or take a stand or bring awareness or march against injustice and demonstrate the same kind of love that Jesus showed us, 
Let's share together in the sufferings of Christ by walking in love. Let's pray. Father, as the body of your Son on the cross gives way to the actions and the behaviors and the motivations of these men who bravely and boldly spoke up and cared for him. We pray that our hearts would be motivated. And that we would be compelled and encouraged to act. Lord, for each one of us here, you have directed relationships into our lives. You have brought opportunities into our lives. And you intend for us to walk in love. Love must lead. And it is hard sometimes. It is hard, Lord, to speak up and be brave in a world that is so critical and loud and hateful. It is so hard, Lord, to speak out because we know that when we do, we invite judgment and opposition. But Lord, we look upon this text today and the example of these men and we see that we can do no other. And so, Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit at work within us. And by the grace and mercy of your son who gave his life for us. and Died on the cross for our sins. That we would be compelled to love as we've been loved and forgive as we have been forgiven. And that you would be glorified as we do. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful.